But in church, because the law, again, is not compassionate and is not merciful, the law is what the law is, uh, brings everyone to their knees. And yeah. no matter how long they've been a Christian, no matter what And in what church, they, literally, right? It literally, you kneel down next to somebody, right. you that's literally right. kneel down next to them. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Matt Kennedy is on vacation deep in the wilds of some forest, as I understand it, <laughs> intentionally without electricity and running water. Some uh, they don't have cell coverage. Like to each a, his own, I suppose. Uh, how are you doing, J.D.? How are you doing, J.D.? I'm doing well, Nick. Thanks. J.D., I'm worried about our boy Todd White. We talked about him last week yeah, and his, yeah. his wonderful sermon. And I was curious about the sermon he gave the following week, this past Sunday. And I looked on the YouTube channel, and of course the video is three hours long, so I couldn't bring myself to watch it. But I did look through the comments, and there was a comment from the American Gospel movie that said, Quote, not true, Todd. We contacted you for an interview in 2007. We love you, Todd. Been praying for you for years. We not, we're not sure how you can claim to know that we hate you and aren't praying for you if you've never talked to us. This is a yikes situation for Todd. He, he may be getting flack and angry for it. Well, I didn't see. I did see when, when he pushed back in his quote-unquote sermon. Um, well, I say quote-unquote because it was like an hour-long yeah. uh, sort of exoneration of him himself um, but he did when that was the one point that I did pick up on when he said that they had never contacted him and I thought that was kind of um, underhanded um, or or uh, well it's not true they shared yeah. they shared the emails on Twitter well I don't think he's being he's necessarily falling back I mean I think it'd be oh, normal for him to get angry um, it, it will be interesting to see you know whether you know whatever his fight um, however that plays out whether or not he actually changes the content of his of his preaching will be will be interesting to watch i do know for myself coming to some new realization and realizing that i've been wrong for a long time is a very very painful thing and when someone else is responsible for that <clears throat> when when someone else has sort of shown me the light in some way i'm very resistant I feel in my heart to sort of let them get credit for it. So I'm sure it's very hard for him to be hearing about how the American gospel movie like changed the way, blah, blah, blah. Like I would be, I would be at pains to f find a way to at least proclaim to the world that this is a realization that I came to or <clears throat> in, in his world that the Lord Jesus like spoke to me with rather than to give credit to some human institution. Yeah. yeah I think it's embarrassing. embarrassing. And I think people, you know, this is where Jesus talks about um, speaking the truth in love, you know, and often counsel people that we probably overestimate how much we actually love people when we speak right. the quote unquote truth to them, because, because we can hear the truth from someone who, you know, loves you, um, which is why we, you know, what's the cross? Um, no, no small thing is a demonstration of God's love for sinners. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that level of love is what is required to mm. really speak the truth. And so that's why the law, as painful as it is, when it's spoken um, out of the context of the gospel, um, is provokes wrath, you know, rightly does, in fact, hurt. Uh, it's the hammer of God. And I think for Todd uh, White, you know, he's he's going to have to walk through this 
sort of public repentance because he was such a public figure right. and because he spoke such so erroneously, you know, I mean, that's, that's difficult. I mean, you know, it's like, you gotta write a lot of letters. <laughs> it's like, I tell people it's, uh, sometimes I have conversations with my dearly beloved Baptist friends about switching denominations. And I say, well, at this point, and it, it grows every year, I would have to, I would have to write, you know, hundreds of, uh, of sincere, uh, repentant, uh, letters about how I actually have not baptized your little baby, uh, as, despite what I told you, um, you know, with such conviction, uh, there's many years ago. And I think, um, I mean, my prayer for him is that, that he continues, obviously, in his, in his newfound courage in the gospel, but also there's some sort of encouragement in that, in that when you actually preach a message that's predicated upon um, your unmerited salvation, you know, when the, in the, the depths of your own sin are unfathomable, but for the Lord, and yet he has deigned to save you, like when that's your message, well then, you know, you're, you really don't have a lot, you, you've already given away any leg you have to stand on. And right. so if it requires humility, well then you're already at the very least giving lip service to that humility. And by the power of the spirit, um, at least I can only speak for my own personal life, um, you know, the humility may be hard won or hard, hard earned or hard given, but, um, hard but it will, away. Yeah. exactly. But it will actually end up to a certain degree matching with what you're preaching. Um, yeah. you know, what the old adage was, you know, you, what you win them with is, or you, what the win them with is what you win them to or something yeah, like this, you know? Right. And so if, you know, if you were preaching what he was preaching, you know, some version of you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and apparently have an enormous uh, head of hair, you know. <laughs> like, and those like, shoes with the finger toes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did do a little bit of, of uh, research on what he had been preaching, and, um, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I mean, he has certain, certainly has a platform, certainly yeah. has a, a voice. And he's got to work it out, you know. That's right. Uh, so Figure it out. But, and he's going to have some, you know, he's going to have to remake his friend group. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> That's gonna, His entourage is going to yeah. shift a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that one, one short-legged guy is going to still always be, always be rue the day that Todd White uh, the found the Lord. Yeah. That's right. Well, J.D., we're going to do another mailbag episode this week. A few episodes back, we did two consecutive shows on free will, and those shows generated lots of comments, questions, and suggestions. One of them, the one that I thought we'd talk about today, is this. Okay, fine. The question went, salvation is monergistic. That is, the Lord works independently of the human will in justification. But what about sanctification? Is sanctification, or the growth of a Christian in Christ-likeness, similarly monergistic? Or is it synergistic? That is the believer working in concert with God to contribute to his or her growth. Does the Christian exercise the will in a new way once they are converted? So I put the question to you, JD, JD, quite contrary. How does a Christian grow? <laughs> well, well, um, well, that's a, a good question, Nick. I mean, I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of ways we can skin this, but I'm reminded of a uh, problem that the late Gerhard Ferdi coined as this, this quote unquote systematic problem within theology and had, had to do with this. And he said, the question surrounded the, the sort of the Protestant adage of being justified by faith alone, right? All Protestants would agree they're justified by faith. But then the question comes, where does sanctification lie within that statement that you're justified by faith alone? And so it either comes in the beginning 
which you're justified by faith, and therefore you are fully and wholly sanctified before God by faith alone, right? Well, then the question is, well, what's the point of Christian life? You know, where's the, the journey that takes place? And so there seems to be a problem there. And so then the question is, well, actually, you're justified is sort of the entry into the party, um, as it were, but then you spend the rest of your life sort of learning how to dance, you know. Becoming you sanctified. Grow. That's right. And so therefore... Then the question rightly is, well, then is it that important to be justified by faith alone? Um, or is it actually you're sort of justified by faith and then what actually matters is the, the process? And what he argued is that there's really no reconciliation to this problem because it, it argues from a different, a different paradigm in this sort of the, the, the terminus ad quod or the terminus ad quim, the, the beginning to the end, that the, the, you had this, this movement that was assumed and the only question then became the fight of where does um, the emphasis lie, you know? So some people would say like, well, it, it starts in the beginning. You have to just believe, you know, like once saved, always saved. This is sort of the argument. And then, yes, I may fall or whatever, but I'm just going to hold on to this beginning point and therefore lose any um, sort of emphasis or thought about the Christian life. This would be the argument against that. And then, of course, the flip side is, well, all you're doing is spending time about how the Christian grows, or you're spending you know, all you're talking about is your sort of growth and sanctification, your walk. And there, and, and there seem to be loggerheads. So he argued, and this was many, meaningful for me, was that the paradigm was wrong, that it wasn't a paradigm of vice to virtue um, as much as it was death to resurrection, that there was a there was a paradigm shift and you go back to Paul and you start reading it through this lens and you see that he actually speaks this way, that you who have died to sin, he writes in Romans 6, how can you still live in it? Well, what does that mean for someone who knows they're a sinner? You know, the question is, well, well I still have sin in me. And that brings up the reality that the problem with the Christian person is that we are what Luther would call simul justus et peccator, simultaneously sinful and justified, and that in this battle, we are at, at simultaneous times, partly, not partly, but, but in places, fully sanctified, fully aware of our sort of walk and union with Christ, and in other places, simultaneously, painfully aware of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, and that this, this tension is what necessitates preaching. Because to the extent that we are in this battle, the only hope that we have is that we are brought out of darkness into light by, by faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by preaching. And so therefore, the whole work of the church in the work of sanctification becomes this proclamation of what has actually happened in Christ for those who believe. And so, yes, even you at this moment. Well, you know, what about tomorrow? Well, you'll we need to hear it again. Well, what about a year from now? Well, you'll need to hear it again. And so it takes some of the speculation about what am I going to look like 10 years from now? It's like, well, you're going to look like the person you are now, which is going to have this element of tension between the, the, the simul justus epicator, and yet we trust by God's grace that, that those who have ears will hear, and you've heard today, and you'll hear tomorrow, and you'll continue to hear. So the question of sanctification becomes really um, simultaneously a question of the church, because what is the purpose of the church? If the church is a, is a vehicle for the maintaining of faith, as it were, or the, or the continual feeding of faith, or the, the holding fast people to their hope, well, then how does, that, how does that take place? It takes place by preaching and hearing, once again, what God has done in his son for sinners. And so then you, then you begin to read things like Paul in Philippians. You know, I just always go back to this. You want to know what Paul thinks about sanctification? He says in uh, chapter one, I thank God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he writes this in verse six, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart that you are all partakers of the, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and then the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And he writes this to his church in the confidence that there will be a completion but it's not a completion in the sense of something that needs to be added to, but it's a, it's a completion in the sense that, as he writes other places, the race will have been finished, that the, the battle will have finally uh, ceased, and the victory that had been secured will simply be realized by those who believe. Wouldn't you say that part of the problem for people as they try to wrangle with what sanctification and Christian growth might look like in their life is the variety of ways that the Bible seems to talk about this? I mean... You just read that verse where Paul talks about his confidence that God will bring it to completion. And then I'm reminded of uh, his first letter to the Corinthians where he refers to them in the very opening <clears throat> sentence as those sanctified, as though it is done and complete. But then similarly to what you read from Philippians in Thessalonians, he asks the Lord to sanctify people entirely. He says that the Lord will do this, but it sort of seems more like a future thing. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then we have Peter in second Peter chapter one, for instance, who says to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and so on. And so we have this, real variety of ways that the Bible seems to talk about what the Christian life is going to be like and look like. And because I think we humans are so prone to want to do, to want to act, to want to participate, it's, it's really easy for us to become more focused on the parts that, that we think we might play a part in um, than the parts that we think the Lord is actually taking control of. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it goes back, you know, uh, part and parcel with the question about um, salvation, you know, because the, the, the real question about sanctification and justification and, and all the action of God with respect to us is in whose hands are we placed? Like, who's responsible for this? Like, what is our, um, to whom do we appeal? Um, is it our will? Is it our um, conviction? Is it, do, do, do we look inwardly or outwardly? And so I think this is how the same verses are often used to, to defend the same the different points, you know, because you can, you can read um, any of these as either appeals to the human will or as, um, as appeals to God um, by his promise uh, to continue to bring forth what he has, he has decreed, as it were, you know. And I think this is how you can go back and look at some of the, um, like the Psalms, for instance, you know, David's appeal was not um, was directly to God on account of all these things and whether whatever situation he was in, you know, he spoke to God as if God was in control, as if God was the one who was either allowing the calamity to take place or allowing his, uh, you know, uh, giving him prosperous times when when they when they were there, and that is the the paradigm shift again that comes when we, um, I don't know if you, I don't want to say you make a decision necessarily, but I think that's the, the two ways of looking at it, because in our sanctification, we place our hope in the same, one of the two places. We either place it in ourselves or we place it in God. And I think that 
um, if you read Paul through uh, through a monergistic lens, as it were, um, then you begin to to read him as appealing to God to do all these things that God has promised to do to to bring sanctification to 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 glorify ultimately to to refine. You know, these are prayers that uh, no one in there, no one would willingly refine themselves, and yet we pray for this and we trust that it takes place. And we are all, you know, any Christian of any of any length can look back at his or her life and say that there were periods where they were blind to their own um, to their own sin, and God, in His severe mercies, brought them out of that darkness and into light in ways that they would not have chosen, and yet um, can speak of with great affection, uh, because it has brought a new level of, of of refining, a new a new level of sanctification, as it were, which doesn't mean, again, going back to the paradigm, it doesn't mean that there is a that there is a a future glory whereby we will finally be worthy in and of ourselves to stand before God because it will all be by faith from beginning to end. And yet there is a process, as it were, whereby we are, um, we have the, what our old theologian friend used to say, the, the un-evangelized um, corners of our hearts, you know, the continents of our hearts are slowly brought to light. And each and every one of those that are brought to light brings another level of of human, you know, genuine redeemed human feeling to an otherwise stone cold heart, which mm-hmm. can only help but bring more love uh, for God and for our neighbor. I mean, that's and that's actually the, how you make every effort to supplement your faith, right? To burrow deeper and to repent more. Right. And, and this see, is why the law, to see your, right. how d- desperately your heart is in need of that renovation and to ask God to come in and do what you would never ask God to do without his first inspiring you to, to come and be a refiner's fire, to like right. burn out all the sinful desires of your heart and to bring new growth. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's why the preaching has to be so um, so pointed and direct about the distinction between the law and the gospel, because the law does not have any compassion. You know, the law does not have any, doesn't care how long you've been a Christian. You know, it just simply says, thou shalt, uh, thou shalt not, <laughs> or thou shalt be um, this or that. And to the extent that you are not, well, then you are outside of the bounds of what you were created to be, and therefore you should repent. And this is what brings people continuously back to their knees in however long they've been a Christian. You know, one of the biggest sticking points for those who are adamant about sort of a progressive sanctification is the fact that it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, that you're still capable of falling just as far um, as a person that's been a Christian for a day. You know, that's the, the sticking point is that if there were an organic growth, you know, like from a child to an adult, and Paul uses that language, you know, he says, I spoke to you like when you were children, but now you're ready for meat. And so there is a, there are metaphors you can use that Paul uses about the growth of a Christian as being organic. And yet it can't be simultaneous or it can't be a one-to-one correlation because I could never, as much as I'd like to, uh, go back to be 21 again, you know, or 15 and start all over and start taking those over 40 men's vitamins when I was um, 20 or whatever the case uh, may be. But, but we can, as we all know painfully, fall back to uh, the day when we were a baby Christian, as it were, in all manner of respects, in, in, at any moment, maybe daily, you know, for some people, mentally or like internally. And so how do we deal with that when we look at a, a paradigm that says there is a sort of organic um, growth and sanctification? Well, there has to be, you have to question that. And so that's why the paradigm 
death to life, um, sort of reorients that around this idea of the human person as this, as this um, simultaneous um, ex existing being of those both in justified and, and sinner. You know, this is what Romans 7 is like. And so, and that speaks to people because it puts our confidence in a very desperate place, which is nowhere within us. It says that we are, you know, the old, um, one of our theologian friends used to say that the model was that we were walking a ladder to heaven, you know? And so you just kind of looked around and said, well, I, I see people ahead of me and I see people below me and I kind of feel secure because I know that there's, I'm on this ladder. He said, well, well, well the Bible kicks that ladder um, away and just puts you suspended by God, by nothing but God's mercies, you know, before the abyss, um, which, which can't help but produce a posture of prayer and sort of desperate need and gratitude before God, which as far as I can tell is the whole point of, um, of preaching the gospel is to bring people to a place uh, where they have no other alternative but to throw themselves before the mercies of God in Christ. And that's where the church is founded. And that's what the work of the church then becomes. Wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said that uh, true humility wasn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I think that was Lewis. And that I think so. reminds me of an illustration that I heard from somebody who I can't remember whether or not they invented it in the sermon that they were preaching that I heard, or if it was a quote from somebody else, but the illustration that they gave was that it's impossible for a plant to grow if you're constantly picking it up to check its roots. Yeah, like that's good. You, you yeah. can't grow if all you're concerned about is your growth. It's right. just not going to work. You have to water the plant. You have to pour what we would call the good news of the gospel, the new life of God's grace on the plant, and trust that the Holy Spirit is actually working in those roots, growing them and strengthening them. And that growth of the plant that you can see is the, the natural result that's right. of the outpouring of the gospel. That's right. And I think that's what, you know, we, we're not young men anymore. You know, we've both been doing this basically. Uh, I have not had another job, uh, you know, since college. And, um, you know, have some, some firsthand experience of this now and seeing the, the difference between, um, you know, Bible study, quote unquote, Bible study curriculum based around, you know, some sort of workbook and a DVD that has that the emphasis is entirely on what your life should look like now um, versus a confident sort of uh, working the steps, you know, like the, the people in recovery would say of just the, of, like you said, the watering, you know, water and sunshine and soil, you know, the, the preaching, teaching, you know, what does Acts 2 say? The, the, the apostles teaching the fellowship and the breaking of the bread, you know, continuing to study the scriptures, continuing to meet together, growing in genuine love for one another, which brings about natural accountability and discipleship, you know, like I care about you if you showed up as you are want to do, you know, high as on goofballs, as Ned's <laughs> planners would say, um, then I would, I would lovingly question whether or not you should continue to be hepped up on goofballs, you know, and um, that's how the work of the church takes place. And I didn't have the confidence of that. I think maybe, I think maybe the way I would say it is that when I was younger, 
I was impatient and had the right desires. You know, who, you know, you have this vision of a holier, righteous, more righteous you. And, you know, and you do trust God and you realize that, you know, sin is destructive. I mean, all these wonderful, good Christian things and you want to um, get there already, you know, <laughs> like, and um, I think, you know, I can only say from personal experience, but now as I look around and I see other people who walked this road with me is that the, the Lord and his, his wisdom uh, brings about the growth you know, slower in some ways, um, and yet more permanently uh, by His mercies um, than than I think it could be accomplished by ten steps to a healthier, happier you. You know, and I think that's the that's the frustrating part of the church for many people is that it's slower and its own God. Um, and when we try to make it faster and in our control, well, then we may see short term. Uh, success, but we also see um, it very rarely uh, is maintained. Complete ruination, actually. I, I served, I served a church once that had a breakfast program for the homeless and hungry every Saturday and Sunday morning at seven a.m. And as part of my job as associate rector of that church, I was there Saturday and Sunday mornings at seven a.m. And this was a this was an unassailable good service of neighbor, love of neighbor. And yet when my alarm went off on Saturday and Sunday mornings, I wanted to murder my neighbors, <laughs> not, not serve and love them. So you have to ask yourself, what gain am I achieving in my Christian growth by showing up there and doing a good thing, but wishing with every fiber of my being <clears throat> that I was somewhere else uh, explicitly still in bed? And it was actually something that you said a couple years ago that helped me sort of renovate my thinking on this issue. You, you likened the heart of a sinner to a ball of ice and the proclamation of the gospel as a heat laser aimed at that ice. And through the proclamation of the gospel, i.e. not the commandment to do what is good, but the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to save the lost that that heat laser is aimed at your ice ball of a heart and it actually melts and then begins to flow out of you in every yes. direction. And so how do you get love to flow out of you in every direction? Not by the application of the law, not by saying you better get out of bed on Saturday and Sunday morning to go serve right. the homeless. In fact, you actually proclaim the good news as over against the law, melting the heart and then good works start to flow out of the believer in every direction. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's where, <clears throat> I think that's, well, one, I think that's a wonderful analogy. I think you're right. <laughs> I was, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, no, I think this is where the question becomes, it comes as a pastor or as, as a, someone that's interested in, in sanctification, which one should be, is what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do? Like, what is the Lord actually, you know, in the old language, burdening your heart? Um, you know, where, because I don't know what it is. Like, I can tell you what he's done in my heart. I can give you general, um, you know, sort of categories that are massively broad. We can know, tell like, you what the commandments are. Right. Like, serve the poor, you yeah. know, take care of the widows, um, you know, love your neighbor. Like, these are rather general. I mean, I'll never forget, I met this woman who was in Vienna. And I ran across her because uh, we were connected uh, to a ministry and she was from Ohio and she had been at a church service. She was a single lady in Ohio and had heard about human trafficking in Eastern Europe and just 
for all for for the Lord's reasons, decided to move as a single woman to uh, the border between Austria and the Czech Republic and work with um, human trafficking uh, women in particular that were uh, being being sort of taken and and abused in a variety of ways. And that's what love looked like. That's what her unmelted heart looked like. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, well, you know, you couldn't make that up. I mean, you could sort of tell someone you know, that, well, that, that this is what they should do. And it's like, you know, how many people do you think you'd have to meet before you would, you would be the one to find that woman that just so happened to meet up with the desire of her heart. And yet the Lord gave her that simply by a, a description of a general problem in a part of the world that I don't, you know, I'm sure that she, she didn't, she was only by herself. It wasn't like a giant, um, you know, army had been, had been raised to go help uh, these people. And yet that's how the Lord works. He says, if there's not a preacher, the rocks will cry out. You know, somebody somewhere by his spirit is being sanctified in a direction to bring his love, his reconciling, redeeming love to the ends of the earth. And it is presumptuous for us to to assume that we know exactly how that's going to look or exactly, um, you know, what what form that's going to take. But it's not presumptuous because he's given us this confidence to know and to preach with confidence that it will take place. And so as a preacher and a teacher, you know, one of our questions, the greatest question could be, you know, what what are you doing? Like, what are you currently doing as a Christian? Just tell me about your life, you know, tell me about your the cares and concerns that the Lord has given you on your heart. And, you know, to the extent that we can find some alignment with those cares and concerns with perhaps an existent or maybe non-existent ministry and outreach of your heart, well, then let's talk about that, you know. But for many people, the problem is, is that what they're doing is they're looking way outside of their actual neighborhood, as it were, to sort of assuage this desire and, and neglecting the very people that God has put them, has put in their, their actual sphere of influence. You know, I was having a conversation, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with a guy who, you know, was listening to me, he was feeling like he wasn't doing enough for church, you know, and he wasn't doing enough in his life. And he started listing all of the responsibilities he has, you know, I'm just trying to be a good father, you know, make enough money for my three kids, like, you know, have a relationship with them, bring them to church, teach them. And I was like, well, you're doing, you're doing an awful lot. You know, you are being sanctified. You are a sanctified and being sanctified man. And you should take, you should just be uh, grateful, take a deep breath and rejoice in the Lord always, you know, as Paul says. And so I think that, that part of the fear that we have um, about sanctification comes from a, a lack of confidence that many preachers have in simply pronouncing the, that it is finished. You know, that there is nothing more to be done before God by all who believe. That faith alone does in fact save. And so now take a deep breath and consider what you would want to do if this were true. Like, what if you didn't have to earn, if it wasn't a ladder? Like, what would you do? Would you just sit around all day long and, and play video games? Like, maybe, in which case, you know, here's the law. You know, here's the... You haven't the actually heard the sermon, if that's what you're... That's right. If I mean, you have a great you have a great metaphor for this, which I love, about Christians growing in reverse. You know, I think you, you explain that a little bit. Well, you... We traditionally, I think, think of Christian growth as a sort of regular climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, like I'm on the lower slopes and then in a few years I'm up higher on there and then eventually, hopefully with with enough fortuitousness, I'm going to reach the peak and that'll be my, my path of Christian growth. But it seems to me that the Bible talks about growing as a growing awareness of need. And so I, I think of Christian growth as 
being in reverse because it's not a path up a mountain, but down into a cave, sort of exploring further and further those uh, nooks and crannies that you referred to earlier where uh, light has never been shown. And that's what the law of God does. It shines the lights into the corners of our hearts that we would wish that no one would ever see. And our Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm going to redeem that too. And that's that heat laser that you said, burrowing down deeper and deeper into those yeah. ice caverns. We're going to, we're going to get a whole animated That's movie it. out this of this. Is good. Yeah. We got the, what is that? Superman where he lives. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Fortress of, Fortress of Solitude. That's right. But then when the heat laser gets down all the way to that core and that's growth, that's growth as it burrows and burrows redeeming and melting then that's when all that ice is turned into this boiling river that's, that's flowing right. out of you in every direction that looks like love and it's that's the right. redeemed life it's the sanctified life actually working itself out in the world by the fruit of the spirit which is no accident that saint paul calls them the fruit of the spirit and he juxtaposes them with the works of the flesh fleshly things are work that's what we do spiritual things are fruit that's what the spirit gives these are two different visions of how things happen in the the world and it's only through the regular repeated relentless proclamation of the gospel that melts that sinful heart all the more or whatever um whatever illustration you want breathes new life into those dry bones all the stuff that actually regenerates makes new something that was dead that can now work itself out in the world in love. That's right. And I mean, working itself out and think about, think about your actual relationships and the, the ties that bind as it were. And, you know, there's a certain affinity you can have with someone that you share a level of success with. Right. I mean, you can have, I think back to my, um, my fraternity days, you know, and <laughs> talk about, you know, and I love these guys, but, but it, at least where I was in life, you know, uh, an affinity group based upon uh, perceived self-importance, um, <laughs> you know, uh, can only go so deep. Right. <laughs> it can only, and, and I, it's my fault. I mean, I was a, I was a late bloomer um, in, in life. Um, it turns out, but think about the connections you have with people that you've shared a certain um, a wounding or failure with, like a, 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 a or a sense of, of having, as we would say, it's Christian uh, parlance, a place where you have been forgiven, where you have been shown mercy. And that is a bond that is the unbreakable almost, you know, which is why, you know, which is why these recovery groups, you know, in mm. a variety of ways are so powerful because people for the first time feel genuinely forgiven because they know that they're standing in front of or next to someone who is, who has been similarly wounded by their own their own life choices as it were talk about growth in reverse exactly that's right. what that's recovery what is all about is supposed to be is that you know you look like you have it all together um well not you but other people do um or you know you, you're around the person who who you know looks like their kids are are being raised better than yours or looks like you know whatever they look like but in church because the law again is not compassionate and is not merciful the law is what the law is uh, brings everyone to their knees, and yeah. no matter how long they've been a Christian, no matter. And in what church, they, literally, right? It literally, you kneel down next to somebody. Right. You that's literally right. kneel down next to them. Yeah, well, that's a whole aside about the people. There's so many people that I've met who are offended by that practice. They're like, "Well, I don't want." Is that the church? You have to kneel. I'm like, "Well, you mean like you mean before God? Almighty God?" That's right. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but that's the point of this. 
of the the beauty of the as it were monergistic or or god centered um, sanctification is that we trust that despite what you know with like that old adage that we used to think was good that god looks on the you know man looks on the outside but god looks on the inside you know when he talks about uh, yeah, Dan, samuel and david that's bad news except for the redeemed sinner yeah. because we know that's bad news but for the good news of god in christ and so when we stand next to shoulder to shoulder with people in church and when we kneel with them then we trust that god by the holy spirit is bringing them you know spiritually not just physically but but then their psychosomatic union to their knees and raising them similarly to a new life by faith in christ and that that will be a long process and uh, we will kick at the goads as it were all the way down the line but that it will continue is a function of his promise not our will and I think that's where, again, we all have exceptions to this that we can point out where people have, you know, in their sinfulness have manipulated the, the church or have, have been false teachers or have been wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever the case may be. And so we all can point to people who, who were, quote unquote, Christians who, who took advantage of us or have taken advantage of the church. And so that, that gives us uh, pause all the time. You know, we don't want to be fully lavish with this grace. But at the same time, we also know ourselves. You know, I can only speak fundamentally for what God has given, the testimony he's given me, and this is how it has worked, and this is how the scriptures have fed it, and this is how we've seen real repentance and real growth in sanctification and real life, as it were, life change, you know, as the phrase goes, um, take place. And it's not by an act of will, but by the mercy of God in Christ. The sermon becomes not about reminding the people what they should be doing, but reminding them who they are. That's right. This is what St. Paul, we had earlier as he's writing to the Corinthians and referring to them as those sanctified. He puts a period there. He's, he's saying it's finished. They are sanctified in Christ. And then he says, uh, by the way, there are divisions among you, lawsuits. He even says that, that there's, there's sin that even pagans won't tolerate, that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. These, these people are sinners. As you said, simul justus et peccator, but they are sanctified. They are set apart. They are called righteous in Christ. And so Paul's sermon to them is, of course, yes, stop doing that. Right. But what's going to actually make that happen? The application of the law is not going to bring about what it requires. It's, in fact, reminding them of the good news that they have in Jesus Christ, that they are a new creation in him. That's right. And we don't want to fall into the age-old heresy, really. I mean, this was part of the uh, sort of split between Luther and uh, a man named Andreas Oziander about um, about the law, because one of the arguments that Oziander eventually ended up making, which is we can see prevalent in our current uh, situation, is that all you need to do is preach the gospel, that the law yeah, needs yeah. to be sort of left away. And if they just know about God's love, 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 love of God, then they'll change their hearts. And then we can get on afterwards to the business of, of, um, of preaching the law. And that's, that's been an error that has been tried and continues to be tried. Because exactly it reversed. Yeah. Exactly right. Because it doesn't, it doesn't appreciate the, the way that God has laid out his, well, in his word, how it actually works is that we are brought to our knees uh, by um, the righteous thundering conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit of the law preached without mercy. And then we are shown mercy in Christ and then brought to new life by faith. And so that's where, um, but, but you're exactly right, is that the, 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 the fundamental question 
I think for the Christian is what are they afraid of? What if this were true? Like, what if this were true? What are you afraid of? And then people can usually point to someone who purported to be a Christian that hurt yeah. them, you know, and that's, and that's a real fear. And that needs, but that's again, pointing back to how the, the corporate work of discipleship within a church takes place because, you know, that some nameless, faceless person, you know, hurt me may be the case. But what I'm probably talking about is my father or my mother or my friend or my pastor or my first wife or whatever the case, you know, that someone's talking about when they talk about someone who, who hurt them. And that's where a pastor and the work of the church can actually do the work of, of reconciliation and, and healing. You know, you can actually begin to, as it were, as it, as it, the case is, do the work of sanctification in the, the exposing of pain and bringing it before the Lord and having the, the Holy Spirit actually bring redemption and healing and hope in the midst of these. And that's why, you know, when you talk about these sort of massive um, areas of, of sort of sanctifiable change, you know, like if only I were, uh, had eradicated, uh, you know, um, all of my sin tomorrow, um, it's like, well, that's, that's a hope. And maybe in some places that's happened, but let's, let's take a moment with someone you trust, like a pastor or a friend and consider where it actually hurts. Like, where is the sin in your life genuinely bringing you pain and discomfort? Like, where's your selfishness impeding your ability to be a good husband? Like, where is your, are your, uh, misplaced desires impeding your, uh, level of intimacy with your, your spouse, whatever the case may be, like, where are you genuinely being brought by the power of the spirit to a place where you wish you or someone else and let's start there you know and I think that's where you can only do that when you know that 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 like the woman called adultery you know that judgment has been levied you know this like you know that you know when your child starts you know they only learn their tones of voice from you for the most part you know when they start speaking in ways that you wish you you they weren't well you know where that came from your judgment is right there and yet Jesus says neither do I condemn you the condemnation has been taken and so therefore the work of sanctification can be done in a freedom of genuine hope for love for god and love for neighbor which you know if you had told me that that was a motivating factor, you know, 30 years ago. Um, I, well, what was a motivating factor for, for sanctification 30 years ago? I would have said, you know, personal gain, because I know it's going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, the less sinful I am, or fear of God, that if I don't get my act together, then somehow I'm going to be cut away from him, which are entirely different motivations than what he's actually commanded us to do, to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so now when we begin to look at ourselves as those vehicles by which God actually shows his love for them, then that begins, continues the work of sanctification whereby our, our cold hearts begin to beat. Um, and, and God, you know, and then that's when the prayers start coming in much different ways. Like, Lord, help me, like yeah. help uh, refine me. You know, like remember that song we used to sing? Refiner's about, like, fire. Brokenness or yeah. remember brokenness is what I long for. Like <laughs> I do not long for brokenness, I assure you. But the joke always was given and I sort of dismissed it when I was singing it as a, you know, 22 year old and, praise bands or whatever, uh, by 42 year olds, it turns out that like, don't pray for that. Cause it's coming, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, it came for you. It's not coming for me. Well, here we go. You know, listen yeah. to me younger itself. Um, but I do think, I think that the sort of suspicion surrounding this entire question at its heart deals with people who have been hurt or burned by purported Christians who have, have sinned against them in, in thought, word, and deed in some way. 
and um, that is unavoidable, you know, in terms of people being sinners, um, doing sinful things. But what should be also unavoidable is calling those places of, of hurt to light and then offering the only hope in the midst of that, that that can be found, which is the redeeming and reconciling love of Christ for sinners. Yeah. And when that's understood and you see families being rebuilt and relationships being restored and, um, and, and lives being made whole, well, then you begin to have an altogether different trust in the power of God to sanctify than, than, than ever before. And that's just, we can only say that because we've seen it. You know, it's like the farmer's commercial. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two, you know. It seems like the, the truly sanctifying question is, show me again where I need to repent and preach the gospel to me again. Amen. These are Amen. these are the things that will actually cause us t- to grow in the Lord. Show me God where I need you more and then remind me that I have you. Amen. I'll keep going to that church. That's all the time we have. There's a 15% chance that Matt Kennedy will hear all of this and want us to do this again next week and rebuke us and <laughs> teach us and, and show us um, what true sanctification is. But um, hopefully he will be out of the wilds next week and with us again. Um, our time is up, though. Please do join our conversation. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. We're so grateful that you joined us today. Um, thanks for listening. You are J.D. Koch. And I'm Nick Lannon. We will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,